and welcome to Rising. We have another fun-filled show for you all today. So excited to be joined by the lovely Jessica Burbank. Hello, Jessica. It's good to be back in action, Rob. Thank you for, you took a plane flight here this morning. I flew on a plane through smoke and fire. Yeah, through and, fire and, and, and ash, through the, the yeah. ravages of hell, whatever we're living through here. You probably haven't, you're from, you're South Carolina, right? North, North Carolina, North Carolina. But almost at the border, and you know? Yeah, you're right. So have they had the smoke down there yet? Not yet. It's on its way. It's reached okay. Richmond. So I did fly through the smoke and the hell, and I waved to Pat Robinson and then found my way here. <laughs> well, we're glad you made it. The yeah. smoke is pretty wild. We won't bore the uh, rest of the country <laughs> with our, our, uh, our sadness about yeah. um, people again wearing masks outside. You know how I feel about that. Anyway, let's get to the news of the day. Take it away. Well, Robbie, Fox News notified Tucker Carlson's lawyers yesterday that the former network anchor violated his contract when he premiered his Twitter show on Tuesday, according to a copy of a letter Axios obtained. In a statement to Axios, Carlson's lawyer says, quote, Fox defends its very existence on freedom of speech grounds. Now they want to take Tucker Carlson's right to speak freely away from him because he took to social media to share his thoughts on current events. Hmm. Well, Axios previously had reported that Carlson accused Fox of breaching his contract when executives broke their promise to Carlson not to settle with Dominion voting systems, quote, in a way which would indicate wrongdoing on the part of Tucker Carlson. Now, as far as Tucker's non-compete, his legal team believes Twitter is not a direct competitor with Fox, according to people familiar with the matter. Carlson's Fox contract states he is, quote, prohibited from rendering services of any type whatsoever, whether over the Internet, via streaming or similar distribution or other digital distribution, whether now known or hereafter devised. Meanwhile, as of the taping of the segment, Carlson's posting has earned over 100 million views. 100 million views. So this is very interesting, the, uh, the disagreement, the acrimonious split between Fox and Tucker heating up. Um, I think Fox will be able to very successfully argue that Twitter is, in fact, a direct competitor. Um, Twitter is morphing itself into more of a platform for conservative news and entertainment. Um, uh, they're attracting Tucker's show. They were attracting Daily Wire. They screened, mm -hmm. Twitter exclusively streamed What is a Woman um, right. a few days ago. So that part of it, um, I, I think Fox is, is going to have a you know pretty <laughs> airtight legal claim. Yeah. However, you know Tucker's argument is that they broke the contract first because they had agreed with him that the way the Dominion would go down, it would not make it look like Tucker's show had done something wrong. So anyway, I think they're just kind of, you know, marshalling their best arguments for uh, eventually some kind of legal action and resolution. But um, how do you see it? They're going to try and claw some of that settlement money back from yeah, right, Tucker, probably. Right. Uh, take some of his cut from the ad revenue from streaming, which I'm not even sure that Elon Musk offers on Twitter right. when you have a show on there. But it's a messy breakup between Fox and Tucker. Who's surprised? I mean, it was just such a, a fiery right. relationship that, of course, now there's going to be drama after the fact. I mean, Fox having $4 billion cash on hand, then dishing out 780 seven yeah. million some odd dollars, they probably want to get some of that back from Tucker. Yeah, it's clear they have been <laughs> impacted. It's it's not, uh, it's a heavy, it's a big chunk of change. Um, they're making um, a lot of, uh, some programming decisions, um, laying some people off. Um, a Actually, a, a show that I uh, 
am on frequently on Fox, on Fox Business. Um, my friend Kennedy, her show is the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business. Um, they uh, they ended that show, and you know, not explicitly a reason given, but um, I have to do it. I have to imagine it has to do in some sense with um, saving money. Tucker proving that he does not need Fox specifically to draw a massive audience, 100 million views, um, ever, you know, everyone tuning in. Um, we talked about the, the substance of the episode um, yesterday. I, I was seeing some people, even people who are fans of Tucker, saying that this new format, you know, just him uh, posting to Twitter needs more, um, you know, didn't have like the elements and the graphics and the, the, mm -hmm. the fancy stuff that comes with having a, a um, a, a network television show, um, or you know, or a show such as ours. I have little <laughs> writing on the screen right now. It's you know, it, it makes the show. It's not us. It's, yeah. it's the it's the behind the scenes and the writing on the screen. That with, you know, without that, it's uh, it, it it loses some some energy. So I saw people even who are fans of Tucker objecting to that. But the content was still was you know what he was delivering on his news show, um, talking about you know the Russia Ukraine narrative and how the mainstream is just utterly bought into things that are not true. Uh, then he talked about the alien news. He talked about you know that kind of stuff that that very um, non-traditional energy subject matter that he was bringing into cable news, but that was really better suited or, or more common when you see on social media or on alternative platforms. Yeah, Tucker Sands' production team is a, yeah. a different animal. When yeah. you have a guy ranting into the camera about the green M&Ms, and you don't get to see the green M&M and its sexy <laughs> boots and how controversial it is right next to him, I mean, that takes away sure. from the spectacle of it all and the message. And so, yeah, it makes sense that he would want a production team. But a lot of what he talks about, is he going to get into shady legal territory without having a team of fact checkers, without mm -hmm. having a team of people saying, hey, this might get us into some questionable legal water? And you, as an individual, don't have the same resources that Fox News might have. So he might need a team of people to do that same job, given the nature of what he talks about. And what sure. He, he also might be, you know, on the flip side of that, he could be less constrained in a good way, right? To, to, to really go Maybe. down. You know, I don't, I don't think yeah. every crazy thing is accurate. Uh, but also, I know there's a lot of hand-holding mm -hmm. and a lot of gatekeeping at large media organizations. Uh, you know, there are pressures and checks to not, you know, go to, to, to fully investigate things. I mean, again, he talks a lot about Russia-Ukraine stuff. And the buy-in, not specifically at Fox, where I think a lot of skepticism has been expressed. So they brought on Republican lawmakers who are very skeptical of continuing to fund it. But just in the media at large, the, you know, you're not supposed to cast aspersions on endless funding of the Ukrainian defense, um, he was able to do that, but maybe he'll be able to do that even, you know, even further. I mean, he was lobbing some very <laughs> unkind, uh, uh, even thing, commenting on uh, Zelensky's appearance, which you know people were getting um, upset about. I, th I think, understandably, but uh, but uh, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, I think a world where we get Tucker Carlson, where we can see the more human side of him, because mm -hmm. we saw those leaked text messages where he was like, I'm kind of questioning my position on the issues. I feel like I'm losing my humanity a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, why do I strongly feel that I should commit violent acts against other people? He's mm -hmm. He really, it seemed that the show was getting to him in a way where if he were on his own and not being forced to cover topics he didn't want to cover or say things from a certain narrative he didn't really believe in, maybe we're going to get to see a different side of Tucker that's clearly there from the text messages that run contrary to what he said on the network. Mm. And it, as you alluded to earlier, you know, at Fox, uh, Fox is incurring liability for things right. that hosts say on Twitter. 
the liability is only on the person speaking. It's not like Elon mm. Musk does not incur liability for what occurs on Twitter because of Section 230. The internet, it's structured differently. The platforms have protection for the speech of the people on it for understandable reasons. They wouldn't, you know, they, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to just tweet if Twitter took on um, liability for the things you or I or anyone else had to say. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder if, if that, and I, I've been broadly supportive of that norm. I think it helps make the internet a place where free speech broadly functions, even though, you know, we've had lots of criticisms of individual content moderation decisions and policy and and the and the pressure the platforms face actually from the government in a very underhanded way but mm-hmm. um, but uh, I don't know my, you know my, my theory so obviously Elon Musk you know has a lot to do with this in terms of the transformation he's brought to Twitter um, you know we've been I am very supportive of of the mission statement he's uh, he's he's said that he wants um, mm-hmm. while I think it's not Totally, he's not operated it so far in a way that's totally consistent with that. But um, what do you see? Is, is Twitter turning into a place, a place for conservatives, or is it just becoming a place where everyone feels, um, in, you know, inclined to speak their mind or share their their views? It seems to me like it's a place for conservatives. Yeah. I mean, he didn't say, "Let's have someone like Marianne, let's have someone like Cornell West announce in a Twitter mm-hmm. space." Right? He joined a Twitter space with Ron DeSantis. But he had RFK Jr. on earlier this week, Democratic uh, nominee. On Twitter? Yeah, they did a Twitter and space. And Elon Musk was in that Twitter space? Oh, yeah, space? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Um, and David Sachs and the rest of the gang. That's fair. And Elon did tweet, you know, I want this to be the kind of thing where we have a, the whole spectrum mm-hmm. He should do a Twitter space with Marianne, by the way. I would totally support that. I would support that, too. But I don't know what the show's going to look like. Is it mm-hmm. sustainable for us to have a show on Twitter? Is he sharing any ad revenue? What does that look like? Elon's just out tweeting, like, it would be great if more people posted more content and mm-hmm. I got to collect all of that revenue because we're really struggling financially. Have a show on here, post videos, mm-hmm. increase traffic. I promise nothing in return. Like, yeah, that's yeah, that's not going to work. You got to. No. Um, I I don't know. I've been tweeting like probably like ninety seven percent less than I used to, um, <laughs> just because. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Something something has changed. Despite him coming in and saying we're going to end like the shadow banning and all of that kind of stuff, it still does feel like. My content, or the, the kinds of content I used to engage with, the people I used to engage with, yeah. does seem artificially suppressed in some way, but mm. maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe it's in my head. Maybe I'm going crazy. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll find out later in the show. More Rising right after this. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's seeking the Democratic nomination for president, visited the southern border yesterday where he called the conditions there a dystopian nightmare. Let's watch. You know, I I have a whole kind of confluence of impressions about what I saw. I mean, starting last night, it was like a, a dystopian nightmare with, you know, all of these desperate people flooding across the wall in, in a situation that clearly could have been prevented. The people who run the border clinic, the, the, um, the sheriff, uh, um, and, the, and, you know, all of these other people at the food banks who are working as hard as they can to accommodate the problem, a problem that was created by the federal government that local people are being, you know, forced to hold the bag on. We talked to the hospital administrator who spent $23 million last year that is unreimbursed or caring for migrants. 
Meanwhile, The Hill's Hannah Trudeau reports that Democratic Party operatives are receiving warnings about RFK Jr.'s rising popularity. One strategist told Trudeau, quote, Democrats would be foolish to mock or belittle RFK Jr. every time we make fun of those who hold fringe positions. We lose the Democratic Party acting smug never works. The strategist continued, quote, take RFK seriously, Biden. If you don't, we can create a stronger Republican Party that beats us in 2024. Like Bernie did in 2016, RFK has the potential to activate fringe anger if we mock them. Glenn Greenwald weighed in on the state of the Democratic primary recently, tweeting, quote, RFK Jr. has more support in several polls than DeSantis does. Yet everyone says, as they should, that the GOP has a real viable primary and the winner is unknown. What justifies the DNC and its media pretending Biden has no primary race? I, I agree. I think that's a lot a of point. A lot of wisdom in those comments. Um, first, in the you know, how mocking and alienating you know, people who hold dissident views um, is not a smart approach for Democrats. How many times do they have to basket of deplorables themselves into a loss. That's exactly where my mind went, was yeah. the deplorables. Because how can you expect a cohort of people to vote for you, working class people living in rural areas and places Hillary Clinton wouldn't bother to visit, being called deplorables? How can you expect a party to ever represent you when they call, when you're called something like that by their candidate? And I can see the Democratic establishment making the case now that when Trump had to run again in 2020 for his midterm, he didn't run with opposition. The Republican Party made him the candidate. It's a waste of resources to do a whole primary process, blah, blah, blah. It's really not. Trump was polling at 90 to 94 percent in 2020 for that midterm. Biden, at the worst, 25 percent, at best, 70 percent. A primary contest helps put forth a candidate that can actually get people to the polls for a general election. It's necessary. You're absolutely right. There was no real opposition to Trump whatsoever <laughs> within the Republican Party by the time of his reelection. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the reality. Yeah. You can wish it were otherwise, but that was the reality. Now, now he is facing opposition. He's not he's mm -hmm. not the de facto um, candidate for the party, and and a real battle is going on between him, DeSantis, some other people who are in the race. But as Greenwald points out, uh, the media is correctly portraying the outcome of Trump versus DeSantis as not totally decided. I've gone back and forth a couple of times on what I think is more likely. Um, if, if you're you know if you're being fair to the candidates, it's it's not decided. It, we don't know yet. DeSantis could pull it out. Maybe we'll find out. Republicans are not ready to, to defect from Trump, and he will still get the nomination. I, those are very plausible outcomes, but it's a real fight. Um, on the, but then on the Democratic side, you have RFK Jr. getting 20 percent. Um, that's a significant number of people who are dissenting from the idea of having Joe Biden be their standard bearer again. And you're getting scarcely any mention or acknowledgement of it. And if you're getting any acknowledgement of it from the mainstream media, you're mostly getting like, uh, yeah, right. Oh, my God, we have these crazy people in our coalition. What are we supposed to do about this? Yeah. And for them to frame this, talking about RFK as a candidate, as if he's a threat or a problem, the mm -hmm. strategists are not saying which candidate should we put forth that would be the most popular, that would win in a general election, that our base wants, the members of our party, maybe they like him and so we should entertain him. Their strategy is not winning in a general election or representing the members of their party. It's really 
Biden is the establishment guy. He says the things he that we like. He plays by our rules. He's our guy. Anyone that threatens our guy suddenly is going against our strategy. So when you talk about who the Democratic establishment strategy is favoring, it's it's going to be the incumbent. It's going to be someone like Biden, like they did back in 2020. But here you have RFK doing what Biden says he can't do. I can't go to the border because it would be too much of a commotion right now. Really? Because now we can see RFK is there and he's saying this is a dystopian nightmare. Right. People want a candidate that's going to represent people and actually address the extreme policy problems we have in the country. And RFK is demonstrating he can do that while Biden is doing what? Tripping at the Air Force graduation? Right. He's showing uh, and he's showing independent thinking on uh, <laughs> he's expressing views that are, are contrary to what, what yeah. um, the Democratic Party's main constituency has become, over the last several years, the kind of elite, highly affluent, highly educated, um, uh, you know, the, the, the person whose views are well captured by the mainstream media, um, a person who has, you know, somewhat different views on, on immigration than the party used to have, somewhat different views on economic issues and, and cultural issues, for sure. And uh, RFK Jr. seems to be making a pitch to get back to the the kind of working class, you know, and I say this as someone who disagrees with him on like a number of issues. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a supporter. But it's so obvious the contrast that he's presenting. Um, you know, he, he's where the Democratic Party was, and Joe Biden is where where the elites who run the Democratic Party are. The question is, are there still enough people in the Democratic coalition who actually are closer to RFK Jr.? Because he is getting a lot of support from non-Democrats and even from Republicans and Trump supporters. You know, the things he says about COVID, the things he says about the Ukraine war. Those are positions that are now, I think, just so much within the Republican coalition. I think if, if the Dems want to take themselves seriously, they've mm. got to go for RFK Jr. If they don't want a takeover of the Democratic Party to be folks who have a college degree, folks who are a bit bougie, that's where it's trending. Mm. New voters with the Democrats are overwhelmingly people who are educated. Working class voters are increasingly voting with Republicans. And so I think you need a candidate like RFK to go up against someone like Donald Trump mm. or DeSantis even to capture that cohort of left-behind voters who very well might participate in the general election, but not a primary contest. Mm. Well, MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan, excuse me, unleashed on RFK Jr. during a monologue this week. Let's watch that. Kennedy hasn't hidden his far-right MAGA ties. As the AP reported, a photo posted on Instagram showed Kennedy backstage at a July 2021 Reawaken America event with former President Trump's ally Roger Stone, former National Security Advisor Ma Michael Flynn, and anti-vaccine profiteer Charlene Bollinger. All three have promoted the lie about the 2020 election being stolen. So forgive me if I don't buy Kennedy's left-wing credentials, and I'm not surprised that he went on Tucker Carlson's White Power Hour on Fox to promote his Democratic presidential bid. Lastly, RFK Jr. may have the support of Steve Bannon, but he doesn't have the support of his own family, of the rest of the Kennedy clan. Yes, the man whose real claim to fame is that he's the third eldest of the late Bobby Kennedy's 11 kids has been publicly denounced by many of the other Kennedy kids, the people who know him best. Writing in Politico in 2019, his elder siblings, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend and Joseph P. Kennedy II, condemned their brother's conspiracism, saying he had helped to spread dangerous misinformation over social media and is complicit in sowing distrust of the science behind vaccines. Earlier this month, his younger siblings, Kerry Kennedy and Doug Kennedy, distanced themselves from him as well. So 
Forgive me, but a Bannon-backed, Tucker-platformed, anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist who's running on his Kennedy name but can't count on the support of the actual Kennedys is perhaps not the progressive or principled or anti-establishment or liberal Democratic Party champion that he might want you to think he is. It's the fact that his siblings don't agree with him a really, like, Case closed. He, he's, he's done. That proves he's not a Democrat. Like, what? I've never disagreed with my siblings before, and that's why I'm qualified to run for president. It's like, well, that's not a strong argument yeah. there. Also, with the vaccines things, I always tell people, if this mm -hmm. is your one issue that you care a lot about, and you think the president or potential president or a candidate disagrees with you on that one issue, and that issue is not likely to be on the policy platform, you probably won't pick the candidate based on that. I don't think we're going to see RFK Jr. get into office and say, well, there's a vaccine mandate that I'd like to repeal. That's just not the situation mm -hmm. we're in. Uh, he's not in the power to make a decision about vaccines once he comes into public office. He's not going to change policy on that. And a lot of people, I always say, you need a policy platform because mm -hmm. we get a lot of platitudes. But we also need someone who's going to be an independent thinker on issues. And I think RFK appeals to people because he has that. I don't think he's going to make a big decision on vaccines, and I don't fault anyone for going on a media platform to spread their message, whether it's Tucker Carlson or not. Of course, there's going to be questionable people at political events. Well, Was he friends with those guys? Like, I'm yeah, not that's, sure. And, and, you know, big decisions with respect to vaccines were made by the incumbent president, Joe Biden, when right. he he initiated by decree a mandate for millions of workers to force them to get vaccinated. I, I'm not anti-vax myself. I got the COVID vaccine. I got the boosters. I got the bivalent. Right. I'm not persuaded on the science that it's dangerous, although I, I I do agree that a lot of the things scientists have said, the claims made about the COVID vaccine did not hold up in terms of um, in terms of stopping cases, um, all, all of that stuff. So, so when you say when you accuse someone of being a vaccine conspiracy theorist, and again, I haven't gone through his whole history of everything he's ever said about vaccines. I'm, I'm sure there are things that in there that he said that I think are wrong, but. There's never mainstream people like Mehdi Hassan are never screaming at the Joe at, at Joe Biden for for trying to require millions of people to get a vaccine on the idea that this would stop the spread of covid when that claim didn't pan out. It's only misinformation in one direction. There's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. So I and I and as ideologically, I don't think the vaccine should be required. And I would want I, I would want a, a, a candidate, a president, a political figure that allows people to make whatever decisions they think are best for their own health in consultation with their families and their doctors. It should not be on the level of politicians to, de to decide it. And unfortunately, that's not the position Joe Biden has taken. So I see why people would be drawn to someone, even if you don't necessarily agree with what his, his view of the vaccine is, because we're talking about forcing people. We're taking a, talking about taking that decision away from people. And that's where some healthy skepticism, I think, can be a, a good corrective to the way things work. Yeah, if you want a vaccine mandate, he's not your guy. Most right. people are voting on jobs in the economy and issues that well, matter sure, to working sure. people. That's what we should be centered on. Sure. We're going to have to leave it there. We've got more rising after this.
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the area flooded by a major dam that collapsed in South Ukraine this week. The flood left five residents in the Nova Kakova region dead, according to reports. Officials say that more than 6,000 people have been evacuated from cities, towns and villages on both the Ukrainian and Russian-controlled sides of the Dnieper River, which the dam has emptied its reservoir onto. Now, the destruction of the Kakova Dam led to flooded villages, endangered crops, threatened supplies of drinking water. Ukraine and Russia have both blamed each other for the destruction. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces have suffered losses in heavy equipment and soldiers as they met greater-than-expected resistance from Russian forces in first attempt to breach Russian lines in the east in recent days. That's according to two senior U.S. officials who told CNN's Jim Sudo. Senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, joins us now to discuss. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of what's happening with Ukraine's offensive, which I guess in the greater context of things could be the defensive, but what's complicated now by the impact of the flooding and the greater than expected resistance from Russia? Yeah, we'll take the, 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 the bridge issue first. Uh, both uh, Moscow and Kiev immediately seized on that once it became clear that what had happened uh, and, you know, violently accused the other of terrorist attacks, et cetera. But I think when you look at the preponderance of evidence, the most likely uh, uh, cause of this is actually the weakening of the of the bridge from the high Mars attack by the Ukrainian side last November. Actually, they, they damaged it when it was still under full Russian control uh, and Russia was actually on that side of the of the river. And then they withdrew in November. Uh, the thing has been leaking for months and, and it appears that it just finally gave way and broke the top of it, actually. The the, uh, the superstructure underneath is actually still intact, and things could get worse if that goes out, too. But the reason I say that is because you see that the un the uh, military units on both sides of the river were not, neither side was prepared for this, and they both been scrambling to get out of the way. So that means that no one knew it was coming. And I think they're both just trying to take advantage of it in the information spirit to, to their advantage. So now, yours it is having. Go I'm ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. It is having an impact, though, on the offensive or on the the process of the war because it washed away a lot of mines on the Russian side and also their defensive positions. They've had to relocate backwards, but it's complicated the Ukrainian side because now then they can't launch some of these cross-river operations over the Dnieper that they had potentially planned because now then the far shore has been expanded and now turned into a, a, a morass. So they can't land there now for potentially for many weeks to come. So it's basically taken the southern part of that uh, fight out of, off the table for the time being and put all the focus then on the next part uh, around the Zaporizhia area where now, as you pointed out, uh, the offensive seems to have been kicked off. So you are saying that a, a previous uh, engagement, a previous effort in the war on the Ukrainian side is what damaged the dam. So it, unlikely, you're, you're saying, if you're looking at the evidence, to, to be that it was deliberately either Ukraine or Russia in, you know, engaging this sabotage, but the result of previous efforts by the Ukrainians. And does that just kind of show, you know, the dangers of this conflict going on and on and on, where they, you know, there will be damage, there will be loss of life, there will be destruction that wasn't even intended by either side, just as a as a consequence of this of this uh, horrific war continuing to to unfold. 
Oh, without question it is. And in fact, uh, the, one of the secondary uh, problems that's going to come down the line here for God only knows how long is that because of all these minefields that the Russian side had and probably the Ukraine side, too, as far as we know, because now that they've just been washed away, there's no telling where those mines are going to end up. They could be in the middle of streets. They could be in the middle of fields. Uh, it could be years before people just stumble on them. But now that they don't even know where they're at, and almost certainly that's going to be stumbled upon by people probably for years to come. Uh, and it's just going to continue on even after the war is over. That is, uh, yeah, that's truly, uh, truly horrifying. Um, Colonel, you wrote uh, in a recent op-ed for Newsweek that Ukraine must not be allowed to join NATO. Can you expand on the argument you made there? Yeah, the, look, it, it doesn't matter how this thing ends, uh, whether negotiated settlement here or an outright victory by, by either side. And of course, that really means the Russian side. Under no circumstances is it in American interest or even European interest, for that matter, to give binding military security guarantees to Ukraine. Because, look, this whole war here was at a minimum 15 direct years in the making before it happened here. And the animosity now between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, has just you know, risen off the charts and is not going away for a generation. Even after this thing is over, it's entirely possible that the war could start again by either side in the United States has no interest in being on the hook to potentially go fight a war with Russia if that sparks back again. So armed, armed neutrality for Ukraine is fair game. They should be free uh, with whatever comes out of a negotiated settlement to, to have their own national security, to arm themselves however they want to be. But it is no way that, that the Americans should provide any kind of security guarantees, whether individually or through NATO. And what do you make of what the Ukrainian people want? It's my understanding that for a long time there was a desire to be a part of Europe geopolitically, culturally. And the war has really shifted this kind of sentiment, especially among citizens in Ukraine, who now really feel this identity. We are Ukrainian. We are not Europeans. We are embracing our culture as a part of their defense against an invasion. That's really what sparked this kind of sentiment among the citizens. Does Ukraine still strongly want to join NATO and the rest of Europe? Well, it depends on which part of Ukraine you're talking about, because uh, look, the, the reality is that in the eight years prior to this war, there was a civil war being fought flat out mm -hmm. between the east and west of the Ukraine. And those divisions have only increased uh, in, in hatred of one another and in division. And doesn't matter how this war is ever negotiated to an end, that's not going to heal those wounds. The emotional wounds won't heal for a generation or more. And so the people on the Western side, many of them absolutely want to join NATO because they view that as the only security guarantee against a much larger Russian neighbor. And then the, the other side of the Ukraine, of course, they want nothing to do with uh, with NATO or anything else. They want protection from Moscow. So uh, it depends on where you are in Ukraine as to what they want. So there is no unified Ukraine uh, is the bottom line. Hmm. Before we let you go, I want to get your take on recent news we've been hearing with respect to Nord Stream. There was a reporting in The Washington Post just uh, the other day about, uh, about a report obtained by The Washington Post saying that U.S. intelligence officials were warned that there was going to be a Ukrainian attack on Nord Stream. So there's a, you know, a lot of 
possibilities now, but more, uh, I think, acknowledgement in the mainstream media that, that a culprit, that the U.S., Ukraine, something of that nature is likely what had to do uh, with Nord Stream. What, what are you making of the potential options? Because I guess one reading I have now of the Washington Post report is that perhaps the Ukrainians went ahead and did it on their own. Maybe they did it with U.S. involvement. Um, how has your thinking been affected by the recent news? You know, Robbie, I tell you, I've come to, to really question anything I hear in the public from, from either Washington, Kiev, London, uh, because there's so much misinformation and so many things turn out later to be untrue. Uh, I think that there's at least a good probability. We can't know for sure. All we know mm -hmm. is what's being reported. But I think that there's a, a good chance that this is basically trying to uh, excuse the United States away from having done this. All the things in the Hirsch report, uh, I think, are the most plausible because they, they match what actually happened here. And even at the time that came out, uh, you know, a lot of people claimed, oh, well, this was, you know, potentially some rogue element that did this. And I think this is more, uh, you know, justification from the United States that, yeah, that's what happened. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I'll put it that way. Hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, thank you so much for breaking this down with us. We've got more rising Always my this. pleasure. Former President Donald Trump's GOP allies in the House, including House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, have threatened to cut Department of Justice and FBI funding if law enforcement agencies target Trump in his expected indictment. According to The Hill, this idea is not favored among Senate Democrats who are afraid that it will give political fuel to Democrats. Senator Josh Hawley has called for the FBI to be reformed, saying, quote, maybe we need to break them up. My concern with the FBI is they don't seem very concerned about law enforcement. They seem focused on these political witch hunts. Federal prosecutors have reportedly informed Trump that he is likely to be indicted in an investigation into classified documents. According to Just the News, the DOJ declined to delay the planned indictment of Trump to investigate allegations that a senior prosecutor working on the case attempted to influence an important witness by discussing federal judgeship with the witness's lawyer. Trump reportedly told The New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman yesterday that he has no information regarding impending federal indictments. He said it's not true and added that he hasn't done anything wrong. Haberman also wrote yesterday Trump statements came amid a report from one of his allies that he has been told this. New York Times, CNN, WAPO, and other outlets have all reported federal officials have been building toward a likely indictment, including with witnesses in Miami, before a grand jury today. Now, former Trump White House associate counsel, current vice president of Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections, May Mailman, joins us now to weigh in. Great to see you, May. Yeah, great to see you. So what do you think? Is, is it the case that prosecutors are, going, are building a case against Donald Trump for the classified documents uh, issue? Do you think they're likely to bring an indictment? So I guess so. I mean, there would be really no other reason why Trump's lawyers would be at DOJ. This, you know, if, if nothing was going to happen, why would you continue to, to be uh, trying to talk to DOJ, saying that the prosecutors on the other side are sort of influencing witnesses, offering federal judgeships to lawyers on the other side. So I, that said, I, I, I just don't think it's advisable, really. Did Trump bring boatloads, literally truckloads of 
documents that he says that he declassified, but whatever, documents with classified markings to Mar-a-Lago, sure, that's very, uh, you know, the FBI raided, they found them, that's all true. That said, if you are prosecuting Trump and did not prosecute Hillary Clinton and are not prosecuting Joe Biden, Sure, the DOJ, the government can explain away all of those differences, but that that's going to fall on deaf ears. The differences are just not great enough to make this seem like anything else but political prosecution. And if this is a political prosecution, which it feels like it is, then that's some real end of republic stuff. I, I mean, this is something that I don't think the DOJ is going to be able to recover from. And if we have a, a DOJ that does not have the trust of the American people, I, I don't think it's you can overstate how damaging that would be to our republic. Now, are you surprised that we're seeing this kind of prosecution around the documents at Mar-a-Lago, but didn't see prosecution around inciting an insurrection or claims about Dominion voting or claims about the 2020 election? I guess I am because... It, it seems like American, the American public doesn't run around very concerned, like, wow, I really am I'm wondering where the classified documents after the presidency go. I, I want to make sure that there are, you know, good, tight procedures around. It's just like, it's not mm -hmm. something that people care about. And after the raid, it still wasn't something that people care about. The people who hated Trump still hated Trump. People who liked Trump still liked Trump. It, it just, it didn't move the needle. That said, January 6th was something that, you know, now I think people have heard so much about it, their, their opinions aren't changing. But at the time, it was something that a lot of uh, Republicans were embarrassed about. It was something that you really wanted to prevent again. It seemed, it, it seemed more important as far as protecting against in future elections. So you would have thought that there's something, however, that's probably going to come too. I mean, they're all they're all going to come. Alvin Bragg broke the dam, and so now it's just going to be a parade mm -hmm. of indictments until the American people, I think, just don't care anymore. So you worked in the White House. So give me your impressions of this. I I've said many times on the show that I'm frustrated with. Uh, with the, the documents discussion, you know, it focuses on, oh, Trump kept something he should have. We know, you know, tons of government officials have possessions of these documents, uh, according to them, incidentally or accidentally. It seems to me it must be because there's routine classification of documents that are actually not sensitive or don't actually have national security implications, but rather it's that government bureaucrats are reflexively hiding everything in case it's important, in case it reflects badly on them. They have a knee-jerk hostility to accountability, and that's the real issue here. And, and as a result of that, there might be some procedural pretext for bringing a charge against Trump. He was certainly more combatant about it than other political figures. You know, he's his own worst enemy often as we proceed through these things. But, uh, but, but, but the media is totally missing the broader question of why why are all these documents that have nothing to do with national security? No one has proved, has shown that what Trump had was uh, was was actually you know something that you know, like locations of spies in other countries or something. I guess it was plans. Maybe I haven't seen them, but it was plans to attack Iran that he was against and the the generals were for. I mean, I, that seems like a the bigger bombshell than the fact that he kept them. But but what is going on with the overclassification of documents? 
couple of things. One, uh, sometimes I think things are classified in order to prevent leaks, especially in the Trump White House. Everyone would just leak everything all the time. But if you classify it, then all of a sudden it's really hard to access the document. You have to have that certain classification. You can only access it in certain rooms and certain computers. And so it was just like procedure to stop people from leaking. And then also, I guess you can prosecute people who leak classified documents, even though there's not really a difference in national security information. So mm. that is something that I was a part of and I did for an executive order. We had something classified that I felt was unnecessary to be classified, but we wanted to prevent leaks. Then I think there's just this badge of honor thing, I guess, where people like to classify documents. They like to be part of the know. In, in D.C., you trade on influence, right? Nobody is actually powerful. Nobody's actually that wealthy. But um, if you have access, if you have more information, then you are somehow more special. And I think the classification people, the classification process helps people build their ego. Are there certain things that should be classified? Are there secrets that need to not get out there? Yes. Does it, is it nice to have that prosecution power behind it uh, to make people a little bit concerned about how they're treating these documents? Yes. Um, but I think you're right. There's, there's some ego and then there's some leak control that's, that's behind the classification system as well. I want to turn us to some of the latest on this. So according to recent reporting from The Washington Post, DOJ prosecutors are planning to bring charges of a possible, quote, mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, where Trump used to live, at a federal court in South Florida. The reasoning for this decision is because much of the investigation surrounding Mar-a-Lago has thus far been handled by a grand jury in D.C., according to people familiar with the matter. So Republicans in Washington have reportedly previewed a defense of Donald Trump that casts potential prosecutors as being politically biased. Here's what former vice president, uh, here's what the former vice president had to say when asked about a potential indictment of Donald Trump at a CNN town hall this week. This kind of action by the Department of Justice, I think, would only fuel uh, further division in the country. And let me also say, I think it would also send a terrible message to the wider world. I hope the DOJ thinks better of it and resolves these issues without an indictment. Let me be clear that no one's above the law. I, I would just hope that uh, there would be a way for them to move forward without the dramatic and drastic and divisive step of indicting a former president of the United States. What's your reaction to what Mike Pence had to say there? The, the no one is above the law talking point is one that I guess we've heard from every major media outlet. So Mike Pence is, uh, you know, trying to feel safe at home on CNN. I, I don't exactly know who he thinks is going to vote for him. It's people who uh, like President Trump because they liked Mike Pence and they like what went on there. But then now he's trying to say it's bad. I, I don't really understand his message. Um, but he, it, that, that thread the needle thing, I guess, is exactly what he's trying to do here, which is saying what Trump did uh, was bad, and yet a prosecution would also be bad. And as crazy as that sounds, it does have some basis in precedent where you do have Jim Comey saying, 
Hillary Clinton mishandled classified information and by the letter of the law, I do have a case here. However, if I look at the prosecutions that have been brought before, they usually involve something like willful action where you are trying to sell information to the enemy, where there's something nefarious going on and this just type of mishandling doesn't qualify. So I guess charitably, you could just say that uh, Mike Pence is agreeing with the Comey standard. Hmm. Thank you so much for joining us, May. We've got more rising right after this. Wildfire smoke from Canada causing apocalyptic-like smoke to smother the Northeast, causing some of the worst air quality in the world. It's also fueling some conspiracy theories. While the official explanation for what sparked the haze is lightning striking unusually dry forests, the theories range from space lasers, Antifa arsonists, the deep state cabal going scorched earth, and even aliens? Meanwhile, here's what Fox News commentators had to say regarding the health warnings around the smoke. Look, the air is ugly, it's unpleasant to breathe, and for a lot of people they get uh, anxiety over it. But the reality is there's no health risk. Okay, there's uh, EPA research, they've done lots of clinical research on uh, asthmatics, on elderly asthmatics, on children, on elderly with heart disease, um, not a cough or a wheeze from any of them. We have this kind of air in India and China all the time, um, no public health emergency. Speaking of, do you, do you notice like in all the coverage of, you know, Bill Ware, the tailpipes, all this stuff, they never ever mentioned the fact at the top that China is the number one polluter in the world. Never. Yeah, this is like clean air in China. I mean, it's really bad. Uh, you know, they, in the winter, they never turn on their scrubbers for the air pollution because they don't care. Weir has no idea what he's talking about. This doesn't kill anybody. This doesn't make anybody cough. This is not a health event. This has got nothing to do with climate. First off, these, this is wildfire smoke. This is natural. This is not because of climate change. <laughs> it's not Amazing. because of a fossil fuel, you know, uh, internal combustion engines. He just has no idea what he's talking about. All right. I, I take exception to a few of the things that guest said. Um, I definitely coughed. <laughs> uh, I was scooting back to my apartment, and uh, and yeah, I started. This was yeah. before I realized what was going on, and I started like coughing a lot out of nowhere, and I was worried I was getting sick. It's I. It's not. It's absolutely the air quality. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert on this. I don't know whether the health. It's not particularly unhealthy or harmful. That could be the case, but I definitely did cough. Not the end of the world, but he said nobody coughs from this, and like that is. Absolutely not true. I love that he started this off with like, the air is ugly. It's not going to kill you. You'll be fine. There's but he is right, how, isn't he? That that uh, other kind of China, India have um, less good air quality and are massive polluters, and speaks to the difficulty of of confronting environmental issues when uh, other countries don't take the problem as seriously as we do, right? I don't know. I think uh, saying other people have bad air quality doesn't make our air quality any better. Sure. It's like a race to the bottom. I think, of course, they're going to cite China, but they're ignoring the U.S. military and how much pollution is 
you know, put into the atmosphere thanks to the United States military. I'm sure Fox would not cover something like that. I think everyone has a, a role in addressing climate change. I think it's also a factor that nations like all of the European nations, the Western nations, had a chance to industrialize and rely on coal burning and fossil fuels in a way that many other countries around the world didn't have the chance to industrialize and pollute to the extent that we did. Now climate change is a problem. How do we handle this situation where we were able to accelerate ourselves into a very modern economy using fossil fuels, and we expect other nations to not do the same as we did, right? That mm -hmm. puts them in a tough position. There needs to be some fairness there. I think Fox's inclination to throw any doubt on the idea that these wildfires were caused by climate change, which mm -hmm. would cause higher temperatures, which has caused drier forests in Canada, which resulted in lightning striking the ground and it causing wildfires and that smoke coming here. Like, they would rather make up other theories, along with the many conspiracy theories that we've had, that I wouldn't be surprised if Fox took up in the coming months. People well, saying go ahead. that it was direct energy weapons or DEWs. Mm -hmm. uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about the Jewish space lasers. They were implicated as potentially causing wildfires as well. And that there's some kind of global cabal that controls these lasers okay. that is causing I, the fires. All right, I don't think any of that. You don't think Fox is going to go for that? There are people well, going oh, for that. No, no, no. But, but, I mean, Fox was talking about, um, I think, in fairness, right, there is some question. Look, climate change is happening, and it's contributing to uh, it's contributing problems, and we should talk through strategy. I agree with Michael Schellenberger, a guest we have on the show often, who says it's real, and we should talk about what policies we can have to mitigate its harms mm -hmm. without undoing the progress we've made, because we're not going to go, we're not going to unindustrialize. And right. in fact, more people died in extreme weather events before we had industrialization, because um, now we, technology actually helps people live better. There are we want to mitigate the harms associated with that. But also, there are there have been forest fires since the dawn of time. There's also some, uh, my understanding is forest management issues, at least in the US. I don't know if it's different in Canada that have contributed to, um, to in increased um, forest fires. I'm not, I'm not downplaying the possibility, or maybe it's even in a likelihood that climate change contributed. But it, again, it, it, is, it, it was a lightning strike. It, these things have happened. Um, we want to we want to mitigate the harms regardless, so that doesn't really speak to anything. But uh, you know, a lot of I think progressive activists or environment, environmental activists want a knee jerk. Yep, climate change. Climate change did this. We don't really don't know exactly that this was caused by climate change. I think the extreme weather events that we're going to see because of climate change. This is an example of what those will be like, and so it makes it a good time to have the conversation about, are we going to invest in transitioning to renewable energy as a country? We just had a, a whole debacle over the debt ceiling and how much money the government is spending, when, in fact, there's a higher you know, sticker price if you really want to run the numbers. What is the consequence of not spending trillions of dollars now to address climate change and transition to renewable energy? How much money are we going to spend on rebuilding farmland after disasters? How much money are we going to spend mitigating the impact of flooding on our food supply and purchasing food from other nations? How much money are we going to spend on relocating people whose homes are now not livable because they're underwater? Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a good time to have that conversation because 
Are people going to have to move out of New York City if this was the air quality all of the time and Canada was burning a ton? What I think there are actually health consequences to breathing in this air quality all of the time. What's then the impact on health care spending, right? So there's a much higher uh, price associated with letting present trends continue and not transitioning to renewable energy in the case of mitigating the impact of climate change on us. And I don't think we're ever going to get to the place where we can convince people like Kevin McCarthy that actually we need to invest in something like this because we're going to have a conversation where it's the how do you pay for it debate. How do we pay for the impacts of climate change? We really can't. Right. We want to definitely mitigate the harms of climate change. I agree. And uh, I think technology is very promising. And I'm you know, glad we're going to move in that direction. We're moving in the direction of electric cars. That's great, right? Our friend Elon Musk doing his, his part there. Nobody wants to live in cities that are smoke-filled. Right? I, I, I disagree with what that guest was saying on, on Fox. Like, this is not... I mean, he was saying it was bad in China, but and it's bad here. So we don't want it to be like that, right? You, you don't you, mm -hmm. you don't want to be breathing in. Again, it may, I don't know what the long-term health risks are. My understanding was there are some. I, I don't know, but it's, it's not pleasant either way. It's, it's clearly disruptive. I wouldn't want to go, wouldn't want to exercise outside while this is going on. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk about ways to prevent that. Um, we are going to, there was extreme weather before the human causes of climate change, and there will still be extreme weather in the future. Um, you know, relocating people away from flood zones is something that's got to happen. Maybe don't choose to live in a flood zone would be my response in the first place. Maybe you should bear some of those costs. It's a little bit different, but uh, I see you. I see you not agreeing with me. No, no, uh, it's very free market of you because California, right, just passed. Well, it wasn't a law that was passed. It was insurance companies operating in California, a major insurance company said, we will not be insuring anyone purchasing homes in California because Great. the risk is too high. Market right? at work. So, I mean. Move elsewhere, it's too expensive. Is that a solution though? Like now the insurance company won't insure your home. So if you can't afford to lose your home, guess what, you have to live elsewhere. I don't know if that's a viable solution to climate change. And I don't really see the free market uh, incentivize to transitioning to renewable energy either. I, I don't know what the policy plan then will be is to build a wall between the U.S. and Canada so that the well, smoke Well, the smoke goes right over the wall. That's not going to that's uh, And people climb the wall on the southern border as well. well what do you, right? and I, I mean, the, the free market, I mean, it's yeah. that's a little abstract, but, the, but I mean, the competition to offer better products and services and technologies to people. Um, companies are investing in in uh, renewables, I'd like to, government, you know, regulations that stop you from putting solar panels on your house. It's a pain to do that because the the zoning and the neighborhood associations associations are all going to try to stop you. I'd like to get all that out of the way so people can make uh, can you know invest for themselves in better in better green technology. And there's a lot the government can do in terms of not stopping people. I think that would be nice. You think the government stopping people from investing in renewable energies? Yeah, it stops you from putting solar panels on your house. It's a huge hassle. If you want to do it. I think there's just like some concerns with the solar panels being on the house because of the potential dangerous chemicals associated with them and the structural Elaborate. integrity of the houses. Like I think there's necessary regulations to ensure that the people that have solar panels have them wired correctly and et cetera for the electricity to be used properly. But I think you a say lot necessary of the, regulation, I hear enemy of progress. Right. Let, let the houses burn down while we're like, no, let no, the electrical no. fires <laughs> burn suburban houses down of the people who want solar panels. No. But I think a lot of the or, 
organic, if you want to call it that, but mm -hmm. people deciding or electing to invest in renewable energy is because of the return on investment in the case of solar sure. panels, wind turbines. It's got a huge return on investment. You have the initial cost. They pay for themselves, wind turbines, within 20 years, depending on how much power they're producing. And maybe that's a good incentive. Also, we have tax credits, right? It's not that people are saying, you know what? There's not going to be any economy at all if the world burns down, so I should invest in this. It's definitely in the interest of fossil fuel companies to continue producing gas and oil and make the most of the reserves that they have tapped right now. I mean, when you look at the immediate incentives, they are for continuing the use of fossil fuels, and it's going to take some intervention to push that incentive towards renewable energy. I'm happy to lower everyone's taxes evenly. I'm incredibly reluctant to grant industry-specific or even worse, firm-specific tax reductions because that's the government picking winners and losers and interfering and rewarding some firms, and it will end up being political, and it will depend on who's better connected, and, and the mm -hmm. government has no idea what are the best investments anyway and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's worrisome to me. So how do we get the initial capital into the right hands of people who are going to build renewable energy? You think we can just depend on people to, out of the goodness of their hearts, make that investment? No, I think they'll, I think it will be, as it becomes increasingly profitable, they'll move in that direction. And I mean, why, why do, why do inventors and companies come up with new technologies all the time? Because they can profit from it and people demand it. And when it reaches that threshold, it takes on and that's how it will work out. And what if the air quality is unlivable before then, Rob? I mean, what if keep, we're underwater? Well, doomsayers keep saying, yes, the planet will end. The free seven market years, will give us We're all over. Boats. It's too late, and that keeps not happening. <laughs> okay. So. I'll live in a houseboat, it. Robbie, and we'll do rising <laughs> you from can, our will floating you visit? studio. Well, yeah. you know, your plane was late today, so so maybe your houseboat would get uh, would get here on time. That'd be great. We can. Um, Why was my plane late? Because of the smoke. Because of the, <laughs> well, the apocalypse. You can lower your sort of gangplank and walk over to the rise. Maybe yeah. you don't won't even have to ride. The, the water will be so high. Mm -hmm. We're up here on the on the tenth floor, yeah. and you can just uh, sail right to the window. The whole world will be Venice. It'll be so romantic. That sounds very fun. All right, more <laughs> rising right after this. This week, whistleblower David Grush told News Nation that non-human craft has been recovered and kept by the United States in a task force retrieval program. Uh, the UAP task force has refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft if you will, non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You are one of the most trusted former intelligence officials in the U.S. defense and intelligence establishment. Yes, I was. The Pentagon has undermined Grush's claims about this alleged secret program. Department of Defense spokesperson Susan Goh said in an email to Fox News Digital that to date, AARO has not discovered any verifiable information to substantiate claims that any programs regarding the possession or reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materials have existed in the past or exist currently. 
Back in 2017, the New York Times published an article that revealed a secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs. One of the authors, Leslie Kane, has been reporting on UFOs for many years and also published a book in 2010 called UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Here to tell us more about her time reporting on UFOs and recent claims on the topic of extraterrestrial life is Leslie Kane. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Great to be with you guys. It's great to be here with you. What do you make of Grush's claims that there are craft or potentially even pilots? I can't comment at all on the pilot part of it because that's not that was not part of our reporting and I never spoke to him about that. Um, so that that's aside, but in terms of his his I guess you'd call them claims, his his allegations that there are actual retrieved craft. I take it very, very seriously. Otherwise, I wouldn't have reported on it. And not only because of what he has told me, but because of what a number of other people have told me, quite a few, both on and off the record, but mainly off the record, uh, that there are many others like him who are not whistleblowers, but have the same information. And in fact, others that may have more direct information than he does because they have been inside programs, which he has not. So I think there's a lot more to come and there's a lot more to back up his claims than what has actually been made public. And can you uh, tell us more about what you've heard about the retrieval of crafts that are specifically non-human? Because you know, I, I think I could understand someone saying, or many people coming forward to say, that pilots have seen objects that they couldn't identify, that maybe parts of, of crafts were, I, were, were then re retrieved, and maybe we couldn't explain where they'd come from, but the operating theory would be they were craft from other countries or parts of weapons programs or something. This sounds like specifically it's being described as non-human. There's something indicated in what was recovered that this this originates off-world or something like that. Have you heard, when you've talked to, to people on the inside, the non-human part of it specifically emphasized or just a, just a mystery? Well, we, you know, we did, this doesn't originate from the U.S. government. We don't know. Right. It's a very good distinction. Very good question, Robbie, because we have to make that distinction here. We are actually talking about non-human, which means these have been determined to be that through whatever scientific process has been used to make that determination. And all of that information is classified. There was one statement that Grush made in our story alluding to describing the types of processes that are, are used. I don't have it right in front of me. You guys might have it, but the problem is for us in the public is that all of the data on that is, is classified. But I do want to make the point that he is yes, he's making a very, very distinct dis uh, distinction here from, you know, between something that's just anomalous and maybe we can't figure it out versus something that has actually been determined to be of non-human origin. There are two different things. And he's talking about the latter here, that these have actually been determined to be of non-human origin. And I have spoken to others who have confirmed the same thing. So how would we make sense of this and the recent reporting around UFOs or UAPs? Is this a soft launch of clear awareness of extraterrestrial life, but maybe we don't want to tell the public everything so as to roll it out slowly and give them time to process it? Uh, can we understand this to be a, a soft launch of our awareness of extraterrestrial life based on the craft that we, we know that is there, that has been recovered? 
I mean, it's such a great question, uh, Jessica, and it's so hard to answer that. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a reporter, and so whenever I get some good information that I think is important, I'll put it out there. But I don't really know if there's some kind of orchestrated campaign going on behind the scenes. It's hard for me to comment on that. Um, and I also think, you know, the, the thing about extraterrestrial life, that's such a loaded term. I mean, if we have a craft that is not of non-human origin, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some extraterrestrial aliens that have come here and crashed it or dropped it here. Or I think the, the actual origin of it is so could be much more complicated than that. You know, that the, the concept of extraterrestrial life or what the intelligence might be that's behind the creation of these vehicles is a big unanswered question. Um, and I don't think that's a simple one. But, you know, it is an incredible mystery and it's an incredible claim to be made here. I mean, this is absolutely mind blowing. And I think what's important about it is that that it lead to further investigation because there is no proof of this and we don't offer proof of that and neither does David Grush. It's all about the people that he has spoken to that have provided him with information. So the Congress needs to take this up and I, they just announced today that they, they do wanna hold, the Appropriations Committee wants to hold hearings on this. So it's the beginning of an investigation that needs to happen to find out more. Hmm. What is your awareness of how, um, I, I guess, how widespread within the government, you know, how many, what levels of people having access to this information that has been classified? You know, obviously we're talking about in a political context, Donald Trump, other people having classified documents that they, that they took or that they have in their private possession. Because my, my, my skepticism begins to fire. You know, I, I fully believe the government's including our own, suppress information all the time. The more you know, people involved with knowledge for the longer period of time, the more I start to become skeptical that it's possible to, you know, to keep, to keep secret, a secret of this magnitude. Um, you know, how closely guarded has this, has this um, uh, what has been reported to government officials uh, been kept? You mean over the years, right? Yes. Because these, these programs go back a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously been incredibly closely guarded. Um, a few, you know, people have come out from time to time and, and talked about it, but they haven't had anything to back it up and they haven't had the level of credibility that David Rush has. They hadn't filed complaints with the ICIG. You know, they haven't gone to Congress and given hours and hours of information. So this is this is kind of at a new level of any, any person that's ever come forward before because of who he is and how he's going about this. And I'd, I would have to say, you know, now it is coming out. I mean, yes, it, it's been held very, mm -hmm. very tightly. One person involved told me that it costs more for the program to maintain the security that has to be maintained to keep it that way than it does for them to actually do the work that they're doing. I mean, <laughs> the security is a huge element of it. But that's starting to break now. And here, this is the beginning of that. So um, maybe you can't hold on to it forever. You just take someone like David Grush to come forward and feel it's his obligation to do so, and everything changes. We'll see where it goes. Mm. Yeah, really fascinating and exciting stuff. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about this with us, Leslie. You're so welcome. Thank you guys, both of you, for covering it and taking an interest. I greatly appreciate that. Have a good day. Thank you. One 
or hole in none. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan said or had this to say when asked about the public's expected perception of the organization's merger with Saudi-funded Live Golf this week. You think they're going to respond positively? I mean, you're describing a scenario under which PIF at some point could have the majority of the economics, correct me if I'm wrong, of this entity. Essentially, the Saudis sort of people will say, oh, they control golf around the world. I'm just curious as to what you think the response is going to be. Well, listen, a lot of people have been reading about the tension um, and that we've talked a lot. Um, and I said previously that we were going down our path. They were going down theirs. And today that tension goes away. The litigation is dropped. We're announcing to the world that on behalf of this game, we're coming together. And it's, it's less about how people respond today, and it's all about how people respond in 10 years. And when they see the impact that we're having on this game together, there'll be a lot of smiles on people's faces, and there'll be a lot more people playing this game all over the world. And if you're a young player that wants to get to the highest level of the game today, you'll be more inspired than you've ever been. An organization that represents families of 9-11 victims tore into the PGA's Tuesday decision to merge with the Saudi-backed group. The 9-11 Families United group released a statement saying the tour and Monaghan are hypocrites who have become, quote, paid Saudi shills. And the group members said they were shocked and deeply offended by the announcement. Live Golfer tweeted, Phil Mickelson said, awesome day today in response to the news. And former President Donald Trump wrote, great news for golf, a big, beautiful, glamorous deal for the wonderful world of golf. Congrats to all on Truth Social. Reactions from other golfers have seemingly been mixed. Pro-Canadian golfer Mackenzie Hughes tweeted this week, nothing like finding out through Twitter that we're merging with a tour that we said we'd never do that with. And American player Dylan Wu wrote, tell me why Jay Monahan basically got a promotion to CEO of all golf in the world by going back on everything he said the past two years, the hypocrisy. Wish golf worked like that. I guess money always wins at PGA Tour. Hmm. So, so the indignation is pretty uh, righteous. Uh, what do you think about <laughs> this? Is this, uh, should we all be, you know, waving the, the kind of, bloody shirt of 9-11 over this? No, I don't think this this has much to do with 9-11 at all. I think that there's a lot of, there are a lot of countries that we do business with right. for various things. Maybe it's just the overlap of people who have relatives who work in finance in the World Trade Center that also have a love of golf that's making this more of a thing. Well, the Saudis there. are despicable, but I mean, this, the Saudi yeah. government, the, yeah. their complicity in terrorism, their treatment of their, you know, their, their, Treatment of Khashoggi, the press freedom, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. So let's not, you know, we should be clear-eyed about that. But we've get, we've cooperated with them. Yeah. President Joe Biden fist bumped the with the mm -hmm. Saudis, right? Uh, so what's the like? What's the problem? I, I guess this feels a little. Um, actually, Glenn Greenwald pointed this out. Let's put that tweet up there. He mm -hmm. tweets that the self-righteous rage over golfers taking Saudi money was always hilarious, given the U.S. and the U.K. are and always have been the key sponsors and protectors of Saudi despots. Now that they're all merged, it's so funny that all those posturing golf pundits have to cover the PGA. Uh, yeah, right. The the the. Um, the administrations, uh, bipartisan administrations, have sought Saudi approval and relationships there. So if it's good enough for the U.S. government, uh, well, what's the, why can, it, 
for, for what reason uh, can you get mad at the PGA? Yeah, we were pretty chill about taking Saudi oil when mm -hmm. we had to, you know, shuffle where we were getting oil from mm -hmm. when there was a war that broke out in Ukraine because of the Russian invasion. But there wasn't an outcry from families of 9-11 victims that were like, we can't have any deals with the Saudis Only the government oil. may do may do just uh, sketchy right. things with unsavory Not our beloved Gulf corporations. Gulf. Maybe, but... well, maybe that's true because the U.S. government is already so tainted yeah. based on the, the malicious <laughs> practices of our foreign policy establishment. Mm -hmm. But Gulf is still pure. We'd and expect whole. that from you, but not the PGA. Not the golfers. Yeah. I can understand the golfers being mad, right? Yeah. Because PGA was like a jealous boyfriend, and they're like, you have to pick one. You can either mm -hmm. play for live in their tournament, or you can play for the PGA. And a lot of golfers turned down a lot of Saudi money, and they said, no, we're actually going to stick with you, the PGA. Do they get any, <laughs> anything for, for staying loyal to the PGA? No, they turned down that money. And so that puts the players in a, a really tough position. It sounds like this deal came together so fast that the PGA nor Liv consulted with antitrust lawyers. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like Congress is going to have to grant an exception for this merger. It's, it's a monopoly on golf. That's what this mm -hmm. merger is. Is it a merger and a monopoly that will increase competition only among the, the golfers, the players that now get to play against each other mm -hmm. that formerly were not able to when they had to pick? But this is a monopoly situation, this merger. So do you think there should there could be action from the U.S. government to stop it? Yeah, I really do. On those really on, Not on national security or on terrorism grounds, but on, on pure economic grounds. I think there might be some political motivations. Because I'm against that, Yeah, there, I, you know, as you know. There I'm could the be US political government. motivations behind, all right, we're going to move forward with this right. antitrust. Well, know, they'll, 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 their real concern will be, right, the, the national security concern or the terrorism right. concern, but they'll pretend it's an economic concern. Right, because there are so many cases where antitrust law should theoretically be applied, mm -hmm. but they choose not to mm -hmm. because it's under the purview of whatever the administration's top antitrust lawyer is, which time and again, they decide not to take action when we have these major mergers. In this case, we might see some action taken because of people's beliefs about the Saudis. Glenn Greenwald continues, that said, maybe someone can get better talking points for the poor golfers other than nobody's perfect when asked <laughs> about the Saudis' role in things like 9-11, executing dissidents, carpet bombing Yemen, and uh, chopping up Columnists asked the State Department they know how to justify it and, uh, you know, citing the Obama administration's um, mm -hmm. weapons sales to, again, to Saudi Arabia, a, a, a nation we have absolutely cooperated with in the past for some, you know, larger national security concerns, alleged national security concerns. Um, but uh, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not particularly against doing, um, doing business with companies or for organizations or countries that aren't perfect because if we go down that logic you eventually you just have no relationships with anyone because no one including the US government itself right. is perfect and when people really stand on you know moral principle they're just very open to hypocrisy the the age old like you know, people who are like, well, we won't do business in the state of Indiana because it supports religious freedom or something, and we're concerned about LGBT discrimination, but that, that's not going to stop us from doing business with countries where it's, like, literally illegal to be gay. Like, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, age-old example. Of, and then there's a million other things like that. Um, I, I just think that doesn't really get you anywhere. So if, if it's hard to take—taking that kind of stand easily opens itself up to hypocrisy.
It is very easy for the American public to have righteous anger about what the Saudis have done when they're kept wholly ignorant of what the United States has done abroad, right? True. My concern here is a monopoly on golf necessarily mm. a bad thing. I think there are monopolies that maybe the antitrust division of the DOJ could focus on, and that would be a better use of their mm. time than golf, than the PGA Tour and the Live Tour. It does seem that people are more willing to overlook a brutal regime that's committed many human rights violations and what the Saudis have been up to. If they're getting millions of dollars to do the one thing that they love, it seems that people will, you know, kind of overlook the bad things that they've done. But the players that have turned down the live money that are now absolved mm -hmm. by live, people are saying the Saudis now run golf in the world. What happens to those players? There has to be some kind of compensation. What are they to do in this situation? Mm. Yeah, they have, uh, they have some, some reason to be a little frustrated. They're learning that having morals doesn't pay, apparently, which is a tough lesson. <sighs> tough lesson. All got to learn that at some point. More rising right after this. California Governor Gavin Newsom says he is proposing the 28th Amendment to the Constitution to help end our nation's gun violence crisis. Gavin Newsom's proposal entails four gun safety freedoms. One, raising the minimum age to purchase a firearm to 21. Two, universal background checks. Three, a reasonable waiting period for gun purchases. Four, banning the civilian purchase of assault weapons. Let's watch some of his public announcement. Every time it's the same. They tell us we can't stop these massacres. They tell us we have to stand by and watch tragedy after tragedy unfold in our communities. They say we can't stop domestic terrorism without violating the Second Amendment. And the thoughts and prayers are the best we can do. I'm here to say that's a lie. In this country, we do have the power, the power to change things, to reclaim our freedom from fear. Our ability to make a more perfect union is literally written into the Constitution. So today, I'm proposing the 28th Amendment to the United States Constitution to do just that. The 28th Amendment permanently enshrines four additions to the laws of our land. It raises the minimum age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. Because if you can't buy a beer, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. It mandates universal background checks to prevent truly dangerous people from purchasing a gun that can be used in a crime. It institutes reasonable waiting periods for all gun purchases, and it bans civilians from buying assault rifles, those weapons of war our founding fathers never foresaw. Interesting plan. Obviously, the likelihood of, uh, of having a constitutional amendment that would limit gun ownership is like zero. Um, in fact, right. if you were, <laughs> this proposal is kind of, um, doesn't do a whole lot. I, I actually think people who are for more stringent gun control would not be satisfied at stopping here, given the enormous difficulty of getting a constitutional amendment through. Like yes. if you, I, I don't, I support gun rights and I, I don't really want greater gun control, so I am not endorsing this whatsoever. But right. if you actually were able to get another constitutional amendment 
and you only, and this is all you did with it, it would be a tremendous waste of your power because we we have um, you can have universal background checks. Those aren't those aren't unconstitutional already. Uh, I think you could have waiting periods. Um, the no assault rifles. I mean, this this just comes to this is just misinformation about weapons. Everybody thinks an AR-15 is an assault rifle because it's AR, but that sounds for, stands for Armalite rifle, and AR-15 is not an assault rifle technically. So I, that would that be even covered under this? I don't think Evan Newsom knows the difference. Um, and, you know, raising the I, I take the point that it's ridiculous that you can buy. Uh, a gun, but not a beer. I mean, I think the drinking age is actually too high, and we should generally extend um, the privileges of adulthood um, at, a, at a younger age than 21. But, right. Uh, no 18 to 21 guns, with the exception of if you serve in the U.S. military. Right? Right. So he does believe someone can handle a gun if this does not apply to any kind of military right. regulation. And I mean, there are plenty of shootings of people who are, it doesn't like, like we wouldn't fix the mass shooting pro or any shooting problem by cutting it off there. Um, right. Look, I, what I, I say that, look, obviously gun uh, deaths are a problem. Uh, they're actually mostly having to do with like one-off one um, handgun incidents the, while the kind of mass shootings with, re with assault style weaponry um, mm -hmm. is what captivates us because of the horror of it of the images in the media. Mostly we're dealing with one-off um, violence and crime and suicides with handguns. Um, a, a lot of the crime is committed with guns that are illegal anyway, in that the person mm -hmm. was not uh, was not legally allowed, had as a prior conviction or a prior something of that nature, and isn't supposed to be carrying a gun. So, so because we're not already force, enforcing those laws enough, I don't really see the value in having new laws. But I, I'm fine with background checks and those kinds of things. I agree. The proliferation of guns in the United States is at the point where if you want one, you can get one without going through a background check or getting one new mm -hmm. from a gun store. So a lot of this is irrelevant. Then we have his approach of a constitutional amendment, which is going to require a two-thirds vote instead of a simple majority. Why didn't he just write a bill? Right. He's Gavin Newsom. Right. Proposing a constitutional amendment would be similar to a bill. A bill would be easier to pass with a simple majority. Do you think you're going to get a two-thirds vote from the Senate and the House right. with the makeup of our Congress right now? Surely not. Not only that, but then after it passes there, for right. it to be the a constitutional amendment, the states have to ratify it. The states have to ratify it afterwards. Yes. So ridiculous. Also, if you want the problem or the solution to be relevant to the problem and the problem to truly be addressed, why was there no discussion of red flag laws? Mm -hmm. The problem with mass shooters, which is largely why we're having the conversation about gun reform in the country, is that these are people who are dangerous, people who are psychologically unstable. No one expects a healthy person to ever do something like that. And more often than not, people in their lives, and oftentimes the FBI has been tipped off, that these folks are dangerous. And so red flag laws were not mentioned there, and that's the one thing I think that would address the problem at its root. Sure, I am all for doing more to stop um, disturbed individuals from obtaining uh, weapons. I think uh, red flag laws can make sense in theory, although I'm a little worried about uh, just kind of surveillance mm -hmm. culture of like snitching on your neighbors. But you're absolutely right that in many of these cases, the person, the individual is known to law enforcement who did nothing. Mm -hmm. So then the the idea of and the idea of of, of creating more laws and more reasons for law enforcement to have an interaction with people to arrest them or to take their guns. Um, it, like if you're already uncomfortable in the society with the amount of law enforcement going on, as many progressives are, 
what do you accomplish by creating, like, do you want the police to go door to door disarming people? Most progressives don't want that, I don't think, right? They don't even want people prosecuted to the, like, the fullest extent of the law that we already have. So if you're not willing to do that, I just, I don't want this to become an excuse to just disarm people mm. who are lawful gun owners, who don't do anything, who, who use guns safely. Um, that, obviously, that does not describe everyone who has a gun. A lot of people do a lot of bad things with guns. How do we stop them? But we do have laws already designed to handle that, and we're, we're, we're not enforcing them, or law enforcement's priorities are bad. The FBI's asleep at the wheels. I, I think we you know, have a lot of problems. You know, maybe you would—I I think it's plausible you reduce the risks of suicide if you have guns out of the home. But, um, I mean, as a libertarian, I'm, I'm very unwilling to curtail other people's rights if— someone is going to use a right badly to harm themselves, as sad and difficult as that can be. I don't, I, like, I don't want to, like, that's not, you who has a gun, a firearm, and to, to keep your, you know, uses it to feel safe in your home, or to walk down the street in a, you know, in, a, in an unsafe environment, mm -hmm. or for hunting or something, and you never misuse your firearm, I don't, I don't really want to limit your right to do that. From a moral or ethical standpoint, the law should be more concerned with people using guns to harm others. Right. In which case, if you are Gavin Newsom, your priority is I want to get something done about the mass shootings. Introduce a bill for red flag laws and nothing else. Force members of Congress to tell their constituents why they would ever vote against a red flag mm -hmm. law. I think they might, some of them, make the case that you did, which do we really want the FBI knocking at your door and say, hey, your neighbor said you're kind of yeah. weird. Like, yeah. you got anything going on? Yeah. We're going to follow you for a you bit. You were watering your lawn on an off-water day. Right. But I think that is the compromise solution in a country where mm -hmm. most people have guns, uh, multiple guns when they do have them. We have more guns than we do citizens in the United United States when Australia tried a buyback program where they bought them back at market value, it would take the United States hundreds of years to have all of the weapons uh, bought back by the government at that rate. That's far longer than I think any of these folks have in mind when they think about a timeline of the solution actually impacting mass shootings in the United States. Yeah. And so Gavin just proposing this as an amendment off the bat makes it a bad proposal. Then him not including red flag laws and solutions that really aren't relevant to the problem. I think it speaks to mainstream liberals not understanding guns generally. They're not people who use guns. They're not people who have been around guns. And I think that makes it really hard to legislate around people using them. Let's also not forget to mention the Second Amendment has the language well-regulated in it. Mm -hmm. So what does this cover that is not covered in the Second Amendment? This is the kind of stuff that should be in a bill, not in an amendment. Yeah, I've said that you know wanting to get rid of all the guns in the U.S. is like wishing you had a magic wand and can wave it. Yeah. This is like saying we should obtain a magic wand and then really not do anything with it because <laughs> passing a 28th Amendment to the Constitution would be about as difficult as, yeah. uh, as obtaining a magic wand. So uh, uh, interesting, uh, interesting idea for Gavin Newsom, real, uh, real, uh, real, real great one. Uh, that was our view, but you can tell us yours in the comments. More rising right after this.
According to data from Media Radar, CNN experienced a nearly 40% drop in ad revenue through the first four months of 2023, compared to the same time period last year, which was before Chris Licht officially took over as network chief. This is according to reporting from The Daily Beast. This comes as Rolling Stone reports that CNN staffers are relieved to see Licht go. Employees at the fledgling network are reportedly exhausted, quote, and, quote, sick of being embarrassed. Hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, this was very bad news, obviously, for CNN. Um, makes things easier to understand why they let him go, even though I think the outrage over that 15,000-word profile of him in The Atlantic uh, mm. was, was part of it. You know, it, it shows that, um, that what he was going for in terms of a network that is, like, no longer— um, has a has an anti-Trump perspective. Like I think that makes sense. I, I understand the vision of wanting to pivot away from being just the home for constant anti-Trump resistant libs. But it's the question is, what do you replace that with? Mm -hmm. And replacing it with this kind of view from nowhere, just objective report. Like that era is over. The the everybody sits around and listens to Walter Cronkite era is never coming back. People, we, we have a, a much more. Um, uh, Scattered media environment, people are listening to, to newscasters, entertainment personalities, people that they trust because they know that person's perspective. They want, they want fairness and they want hard-hitting news, but they don't want someone who you don't know what they really think and they're just kind of um, mindlessly recycling whatever elites want them to say. Like that is, people have tuned that out. So. You know, pivoting from from having an aggressive agenda, which is what CNN had during the Trump years, I think, to an agenda that was very limiting because I don't, I don't know what, how big the audience was for that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but to no identifiable agenda, um, I don't know that that works. And and so far, um, uh, the previous CEO did not show that that works. The adver advertising. Advertisement re revenue way down compared to other networks. Um, you know, Fox only dipped slightly in that same time period. I think MSNBC only dipped slightly in that time period. So it, it was a it was a big loss compared to what everyone else was experiencing. Yeah, I think yeah, the sick of being embarrassed thing is a little shocking to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was less than a year. Were producers hired? What changed? Because you can point to maybe the the Don Lemon comments embarrassing situation. Right. Maybe you can point to the CNN town hall. For me, I don't see CNN as this like disgraced news network that's been embarrassed terribly. You haven't I, been watching Rising enough. I, yeah. We well, consider it, we, we preface all our commentary on CNN with oh, disgraced CNN network. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, no, I, I like, I, I get your point. And you know, some of the reporting I think that some of the people do there is perfectly fine and probably didn't change very much. It sounds honestly like the staff were very frustrated with yeah. uh, Chris Licht and that they, he didn't have their confidence and there was a lot of internal frustration with the town hall. But you know, some of that frustration might be uh, not really well informed because they just hate the, a lot of so many people who work there. I mean, they hate the idea of the Trump voter and, and they don't want to appeal to them at all. Like that town hall was this weird amalgamation of priorities where Chris Licht wants a, a, a big, influential primetime event that everyone tunes in for. 
and but it's geared toward Republican primary voters. And the host is someone, Caitlin Collins, who ostensibly was at one point a Republican, but is, you know, one of those never Trump TV personalities who doesn't really who hasn't signaled to me she really gets what Trump voters' concerns are. So she's grilling Trump from a, a perspective that doesn't match the audience, and the audience is thus cheering Trump against her. And there, while it was—I think it was a good idea to do it, and so many people in mainstream media were like, how dare you even platform Trump? And, and that's—he's well, going to be platformed. He's being platformed. Sorry, you can't stop that. Um, that didn't make sense. But the rest of it uh, was kind of a— S-H-I-T show. <laughs> yeah, I think their goal of finding some kind of centrist middle ground to appeal to is their problem. Because does that exist in the United States of America? I think if you asked people in any other country around the world uh, where the U.S. center falls in any other country, they would say on the right mm -hmm. and many on the far right. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you have to appeal to a centrist middle ground in a country like that puts you in a precarious position as a, a news network. And so what do you do? I think you make a good point that people follow people more than they follow institutions at this point. Uh, there are very few people who are like, I just love CNN. I'm right. just a big CNN guy. People definitely follow individual commentators and reporters that they respect. And maybe if CNN were to pivot towards something like, I don't know, original reporting, investigative investigative news, allowing their anchors to share some of their own personal opinions. That might be better than trying to curate some kind of middle-of-the-road appeal-to-both-sides yeah. approach that CNN supposedly has taken, because this is where it's gotten them. I mean, really, I think ordinary people are watching because they're at the gym or they're at the airport, and that's just on. what's on. CNN is—I mean, this is, I think, broadly true of cable news in general. Um, Younger people are seeking out news on social media, on Twitter, on YouTube, yeah. on TikTok. I know that's you're particularly active there. That's where mm -hmm. you can get all your your Jessica <laughs> news is on uh, is on TikTok, and uh, and uh, you know what? Honestly, I think that can be better and that can be healthier than just having a handful of supposedly objective, supposedly neutral, but in all honesty, not neutral whatsoever right. voices who are the commanding ones, and everyone's sitting around listening to them. Uh, but there's very little dissent or disagreement, and there's even maybe an effort to shield them from what's really going on. Uh, that Was that ever—we have this fantasy of that it used to be better because there used to be less discord, more agreement, more harmony, and, and, and less dissension in the news atmosphere. But was that mm -hmm. really better? I don't think it was. Right. I mean, the biggest bias in news coverage is just what are you covering? What is the story? And so I always hear Absolutely. people say, I, I miss the old days when they would just give us the facts of the story, when there's a whole world of news happening every day. And there is so much bias in focusing on X, X, focusing on X Y, and Z, and what facts are you going to use to back mm -hmm. up what happened, when you could ask many different kinds of people about their opinions on what happened on the news, instead of just saying, this eyewitness said this, and these are the facts of the story. Why did you pick that eyewitness? Why did you include those facts? Why did you pick that story? There's always been bias in news coverage, and there really is no such thing as neutral coverage uh, or news coverage that is 
truly in the middle of the road, um, unless you're polling the public and sure. only saying the opinions that the majority of people believe, which would really limit your news coverage because we as a country believe on next, or we all believe next to nothing. We agree on next to nothing. The average voter or average American is a mixed bag of views. They don't expect the news anchor or a political commentator to say everything that they would agree with every time. And I think to strive towards that is probably a waste of time. Yeah, absolutely. And CNN, uh, and, and then for all the uh, change in direction that Chris Lick said he wanted to impose on the network, and it, though he and he did make a couple personnel changes and, and shuffle some things, to me the content seemed broadly similar as it was years before. I, I, I don't want. I'm not. I'm not watching every day. I'm probably watching more than most people. And like it's still during this classified documents thing, it's been wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the document scandal in in what I would say is a somewhat sensational, somewhat you know, bringing on all these former law enforcement people, like, oh, this is going to be the thing that dooms Trump. It's that kind of talk. Like, how many, how many more times are we going to cry wolf on this thing? But not to say there's no legitimate criminal wrongdoing, but the idea that finally Trump is done because... He had some documents where he wasn't supposed to have them. It strikes me as very in keeping with the kind of, um, uh, with exactly the way the network covered every event of the Trump administration with dramatic self-importance. Which I think all of this points to there must be something more going on internally that the talent is experiencing that we're not getting on our side of things. What conversations are going into what decisions are made in production meetings and how much say would the chief executive have in those meetings to have influence over them and cause this chaos and lead people to say he's burning CNN to the mm -hmm. ground, right? Well, in the Atlantic profile, it sounded like he was having a lot of input mm -hmm. and maybe that's what was making people internally annoyed. So we'll continue to follow CNN's prospects, but that does it for us today. Tomorrow, Jessica will be back here along with Amber Athey, and I will hand off the baton to them. I'm very much looking forward to watching, and they'll see you tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere that you can consume podcast-based content. Take care. It's been fun, Robbie. Good having you.